Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chapter 35. Darcy has written a letter to Elizabeth and found her in order to give it to her. She reads and rereads it. The letter promises to not repeat any of his, quote, loving sentiments. It is strictly a rebuttal, written to address the accusations she made while rejecting him. She accused him of two things— One, of scheming to separate Bingley and Jane, and two, of cutting off Wickham despite his own father's deathbed wishes. Darcy ranks the issues in order of importance. The Jane and Bingley thing is, at worst, the separation of two people who barely knew each other, he says. And then the Wickham accusation, that he knowingly ruined a man, he tells us is far worse. He starts with the Jane and Bingley thing to get it out of the way. As Charlotte foresaw, he didn't think that Jane was flirting enough with Bingley. Although his friend was clearly in love, he believed Jane to be indifferent. And if she truly was indifferent, why spend so much time with his rich friend? Because she was sent by her money-grubbing family to scheme and trap him. He says, no offense, Lizzie, but your family is crass and inappropriate. You can see how I came to that conclusion. So Darcy whisked Bingley away to London and convinced him that Jane was never into it. He didn't even tell Bingley that Jane was in London, which he admits was a low move. That bit he regrets. But otherwise, he feels that he used his incredible brain and unbiased intellect to come to the only logical conclusion. The Wickham accusation takes more time to address. Darcy tells Lizzie the whole story from his side. Wickham was set to inherit £1,000 and a position as a clergyman on the Pemberley estate upon the death of Darcy's father. But when Darcy Sr. died, Wickham told Darcy he didn't want to be a clergyman. Instead of a lifelong job, he said, "'Give me £3,000 once, and I'll go on my way and become a lawyer.'" Darcy agreed to the deal. For some context, three thousand pounds in eighteen hundred would now be approximately three hundred thousand dollars. Although those numbers are often really hard to equate, so here's a little more context: a middle-income salary in eighteen hundred was between one hundred and two hundred pounds a year. An excellent salary was five hundred pounds a year. So at minimum, 3,000 pounds is six years of a high wage. 
take that as you will. Wickham, a few years later, came back to Darcy. He said that he had fallen on hard times and now would like to take him up on that clergyman thing. Darcy says no. A deal was a deal. You forfeited your right to the clergy position when I gave you the money. Wickham got mad. Darcy still said no. Then, just last summer, a mere nine months ago, Wickham weaseled his way back into the Darcy family's life. With the help of Georgiana's governess, he tried to run away with Georgiana and elope. Darcy is convinced that his 15-year-old sister was the target of Wickham's scheme, both because it would upset Darcy and also because she is worth 30,000 pounds, nearly $3 million in modern purchasing power. Darcy tells Elizabeth that if she doesn't believe him, she can double-check with Fitzwilliam. I have always loved this letter. Imagine being able to know exactly what someone holds against you and point by point take it apart. You thought this? Well, let me correct you. The puzzle of these two people's relationship comes into full view because all of the information is finally being shared. But as I've gotten older, the letter has revealed itself to be more than legal recourse. Here is Professor Aisha Ramachandran on some of the more troubling aspects of this letter. I mean, I have loved the letter too, but I've also come to understand that the tone of voice and the stance from which that letter is written, right, is not the tone of voice and the stance of somebody who is genuinely trying to engage another person's feelings. It's the tone and letter of, of somebody who feels called out unjustly and who is trying to kind of explain and justify his own actions, right? This is not an intersubjectively honest letter in any way. I think that exactly what Professor Ramachandran is speaking of is in a sentence like this. Darcy says, quote, that I was desirous of believing her indifferent is certain, but I will venture to say that my investigation and decisions are not usually influenced by my hopes and fears. We are learning about Darcy here. He has not done the things we thought he did, but we are also learning that we weren't really wrong about him either. It is only a very pompous person who feels as though they can say they make decisions in an unbiased manner. Chapter 36 is Elizabeth's response to reading the letter. She can't take it in all at once. She so wants to know what he'll say next that she's reading ahead of herself and so not fully comprehending. She deeply wants him to further reveal himself as a jerk and she gets delighted when a piece of information seems to be hinting in that direction. But then she gets taken in. It's true that Jane is hard to read. And yes, painful but true, but her family is embarrassing. But worst of all is the revelation about Wickham. Now she sees it all so clearly. That Wickham didn't come to the ball in order to avoid Darcy. That he spoke too freely that he only started talking widely about how much of a jerk Darcy was once Darcy had left town. The letter, obnoxious though it is, is winning. Here is Professor Tara Menon on how the letter affects Lizzie. I think that what the letter allows in Pride and Prejudice is 
for the reader, no matter what they think about Darcy's tone and whether he remains a pompous ass, am I allowed to say that? Or not, like, no matter what the reader's feeling about Darcy is, I think what the letter allows is a full and sudden realization of how mistaken Elizabeth has been up until this point. And because we're so almost too perfectly aligned with her way of seeing the world, we need the letter as much as Elizabeth needs the letter because we need to be uh, pulled out of, I think, her consciousness in a way in order to recognize what's really going on. Yes, Darcy is obnoxious for saying that he sees things clearly and is never unbiased. But it turns out that we have thought that about ourselves the whole time, too. Shit. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. (sighs) Lauren. Vanessa. What do you have to teach us today before we jump into this controversial letter? Well, just a very brief thing. I think we should just talk about letters for a moment. They were a big deal back then. And Mm -hmm. as we've discussed before, you could not write a letter to a person of the opposite sex unless it was a marriage proposal. (laughs) And that's already come and gone. (laughs) So it's a very risky act for Darcy to be handing Lizzie this letter to begin with. Plus, like, this is a major letter. Letters were usually just written on a single page and folded in half like a greeting card. You'd write on the outside and you'd write on the two halves of the inside and then the back of it would be where you would address it and seal it with wax. And if you were writing a really ambitious letter, which is something that Jane Austen loved to do, girl loved a long letter, you wouldn't just add a second piece of paper because paper was really expensive and the weight to post it was really expensive. So she would do something and others would too, which was this type of cross writing where you would turn the page 90 degrees and then write going in the other direction over what you had already written, which is wild. But does Darcy do that? No, because Darcy has so much money and so much to say that he uses two whole pages, unthinkable, and then a third as an envelope, which he also writes over. So the literal, you know, value of this letter exists in so many significant ways, right? It connotes his wealth, it connotes his seriousness, and it connotes how much he has to say. And, you know, I dipped back into that early chapter when they're all at Netherfield and talking about the writing of letters and how careless Bingley is and false humility talking about how reckless he is when he writes a letter. But what we learn about Darcy is that Darcy writes very slowly and very seriously. So the fact that he is begun writing this letter at eight o'clock this morning and has these three weighty pages to hand illicitly to Lizzie, this is a big deal. The only thing I'll say in Darcy's defense is that he hand delivers the letter. So postage is cheap. (laughs) This is true. And is talk cheap? We will find out. (laughs) I mean, I think that that's part of what I love about this letter is that it's almost like a legal brief. 
it's the thing I wish I could do sometimes in an argument, which is like take apart someone else's accusations point by point. And sometimes I do feel like confronting someone is better written because I'm more articulate and can be a little calmer and can go back and edit it. And then the other person can think before they see it. I think all of that intention is why I find this letter so satisfying. And then, you know, of course, we read it more closely and it's complicated in all sorts of ways. But I love how big of a deal it is. It is a huge deal. I agree. But I do think it is really interesting that in what we see as a love story, a letter is at the center of it, and it is not a love letter. He is talking to the woman who he has just confessed utter love for, ardent love for, right? Against all of his best knowledge and interest, as he has insulted her to say, mid-proposal. <laughs> and yet he finds himself incapable of writing a love letter. It's debate team prep. It is, you know, a point-by-point argument that is, to me, the intent may be one of romance and love somewhere deep under there, but there is nothing capital R or lowercase r romantic about this letter. The thing that I find romantic about it is that he's respecting her wishes. It is the opposite of Collins, right? Collins is like, no, you don't mean it. Obviously, you're not going to get a better proposal than this one. And Darcy is like, fine, I heard you. I'm not going to repeat anything loving. I want you to read the letter. So let me just tell you up front, don't worry. I'm not going to do any of that. And I do think part of that comes from defensiveness and a, you know, a feeling of deep rejection, right? He says it in this like really dramatic way, you know, these feelings that were so repugnant to you. And but I think it's respectful, right? As someone who has seen a lot of breakups where one person does not accept the rejection and keeps trying to like persuade the other person, I I think that's another thing I like about it. He's just like, fine. Okay, I need you to know these things because I just do and I can't help it, which is its own kind of passion, right? Like I cannot let someone think unjust things about me. I do think shows a kind of dignity and self-respect that I value. I sound like I love this letter more than I do. Well, and I also sound like I love this letter less than I do. <laughs> but here's my question. Who is this letter for? Yeah. I do think it's for Darcy so he can sleep better at night knowing that, that she doesn't think these horrible things about him. But I are letters ever really for another person? Aren't they always a little bit or mostly for us? Probably. And certainly after a fight. I mean, you conjured for me every time I've ever hung up on someone and written an email that just like comes out of me like a torrent, right? Right. It is always when I am my most articulate, my most forceful, and my least thinking. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is that email, yeah. which is often ill-advised. In this situation, it isn't ill-advised. It isn't out of control. And it isn't disrespectful. I mean, and I love, there is a level of respect to this also in that he says, I know that you probably won't feel like reading this, but I demand it of your justice, right? And I think, again, he knows that she has a sense of justice and that in that way, I do find it to be kind of a love letter. It's just he so clearly respects her so much. 
Well, I think he also has not experienced anyone disrespecting him. You know, (laughs) I think that he has lived so far above the fray that both his haughtiness and his wealth has allowed him to be so untouchable. And I think that he feels the need to restore justice in a sense that he has now been questioned and he has been shamed. I mean, this seems to me to be a person who does not know shame. (laughs) It doesn't even occur to him that she'll say no to a proposal when she so clearly is not interested in him because he's Darcy. He's Mr. Pemberley. He's got it all, right? But what he doesn't have, the one thing he doesn't have is Lizzie's respect. Yeah, this no is actually important for their love story, right? Because it is an acknowledgement of the power she has over him, not just to attract him, but to determine his life, right? To determine his fate, to determine his happiness. And to give him his sense of self, which is why I find the first half of the letter more frustrating, right? This, like, first accusation of you separated Jane and Bingley. I just find him so obnoxious in this section of the letter. I mean, at one point, he literally says, yes, I was biased against your sister, but I didn't let my bias against your sister impact my decision. I'm like, how... How can you say both of those things? And yet there is this sort of gross, complicated thing, right? Which is what it means to have wealth in a society where there is no such thing as equal wealth means you always have the thing that other people are trying to get. And so you're always protecting yourself from other people who are trying to get that thing. And clearly the Bennets are desperately trying to get that thing. And they're not polite about it. They, they're not mannered about it. Like Mrs. Bennett is so obvious about how desperate and mercenary she is. We even hear from, you know, from Sir Lucas that this is, of course, now part of the grand plan, which, of course, puts you back on your heels. And like, it's a moment to circle the wagons. And I think that I think that's actually a reasonable defense of Darcy's, one that I don't agree with in a way that feels good in terms of class or economics. But without evidence that Jane was giving her heart, right? Bingley is all heart and not mind. And Darcy is all mind and not heart. And I think that that's at least what he wants for his friend is to have the reciprocation of heart. And without seeing evidence of that, I mean, you can kind of understand why he might have wanted to protect things. Yeah. If I saw someone who I thought was clearly going after my friend's money but didn't care about them, I would justify separating them. The real moment of ridiculousness, though, is when he says, the only thing I regret is that I hid from Bingley that your sister was in London, but it was all for the best. And the way he says, I regret it. He doesn't say I regret it. He says it was beneath me. I'm just like the paradox of I disrespected myself. I'm too good to behave like that. But I did behave like that. And it's all for the best. I'm just like, wow, you are having it every which way here, sir. 
And I mean, like, this is where all of his power lies, right, is he gets to be this one man justice system. He gets right. to determine what is best for everyone. And then he gets to manifest it without having anyone question him, without questioning himself. I mean, he is very much of the past, right? He is very much of a way of thinking about money equals the state and the person who controls all of his parishes equals the church and He's just literally playing God with everyone, and no one seems to see through it except Lizzie. Yeah, and this letter is showing no evidence of regretting any of that. He thinks that just, quote-unquote, just the facts, ma'am, will clear his name, not understanding that he acted wrong, and so an honest reflection of the facts actually indicts him to some extent. And this bloodlessness, right, this this lack of passion in examining how people meet and love, how people dance and write letters to each other, how people exist in a romantic world is something that he seems so totally, like, in the weeds about, which I think is part of why Lizzie had no idea that he felt this until he sits down and proposes to her. And of course, this is, you know, this is also the systemic failure of this era in which you aren't even allowed to give someone a letter, right? How are these emotions possibly exchanged? And when when Lizzie is told as a woman that she should be playing hard to get, when Darcy is being told as a man that he will get whatever he wants, and when no one can have any honest conversation, it's it's impossible. And in fact, I think is is... There's a lot of pain here on both yeah. parts. Absolutely. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com The second part of the letter, though, I think is much more clear cut to some extent, right? Lizzie accused Darcy of screwing over Wickham. And he's like, well, let me tell you what actually happened. And he walks us through and there is anger here. And I think that we do see some signs that he just doesn't like Wickham. But I find less to be objectionable in this second half of the letter. And actually that there's this generous offering, again, of trust of Lizzie, which he says, like, Wickham tried to kidnap my 15-year-old sister. 
And my sister fell for it. And that information could ruin Georgiana. And he entrusts Lizzie with that information, which that is the most vulnerable moment of the letter to me. And it just happened last summer. <laughs> yeah, I know. It just happened. He ends up like in this sort of random spot in England with his buddy. And lo and behold, look who's there. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. The guy who tried to kidnap your sister. I like can't imagine. And then is making inroads on the woman that you're falling in love with. Ugh. But yes, I agree. And I think that in terms of a legal brief, like it's a much more solid brief. It's about numbers. It's about dates. It's not about feelings and communication. And so he can write a very, very effective defense about it. I mean, he's really good at writing an argument. This is a good yeah. op-ed. Like he has tons of evidence. He has evidence from different sources, right? He says, if you don't believe me, ask Fitzwilliam. And these are the figures. And here's the chronology. Like it's all there. Yeah. And yet... There is something that feels so dispassionate about it. He does not say, when I saw him circling you, it terrified me and broke my heart. I wanted to protect yeah. you. He never says anything like that. He knows that Lizzie was at risk with Wickham. And that doesn't seem to touch him in any way. And the fact that this letter is so holy about clearing his name, that this is like the epistolary moment that is the tentpole for this entire book, right? That this is the pivotal moment for all of Pride and Prejudice and that Pride and Prejudice goes on to have its role in our current day. It's so amazing to me that it comes down to this letter. <laughs> I, I love it because it's so about consent. What Wickham does is awful because a 15-year-old cannot give informed consent. And Collins's proposal is awful because he does not listen to her no. And Darcy is the best because he so hears her no that he's not even going to passive-aggressively be like, and it broke my heart to watch him go after you. I think that it is defensive. I'm not sure it comes from a good place in him. I think he's like, I heard your no. It was real mean. And so I'm not going to tell you nice things anymore. But I I think that this is just my love language. <laughs> and I know it's not everyone's, right? Like, God bless. But I think that that is why I love Darcy so much. He is just so respectful of her no. Oh, this is complicated because – I agree that I appreciate that he respects her no, but I think in Lizzie, there is also someone who wants to have a case made for romance and not in a way that is necessarily disrespectful, but certainly in a way that it feels really important to have someone say, listen, I think that maybe you didn't see my heart in this. Yes. And maybe you aren't seeing you the way that I see you. And I don't mean that in like some paternalistic gross way. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the tricky thing with, I don't even want to say seduction because that sounds manipulative, but mm -hmm. consent is really important. Physical consent is 100% important. And yet, when we, I think, eliminate the possibility for all of the sort of tender and difficult and risky and vulnerable 
places that we can go as we are trying to figure out if we could fall for someone or not, then I wonder if we ever get to the point where we want to consent. Yes. Totally. And, you know, there's a third accusation. I I mean, this is just occurring to me. But there's another accusation that Lizzie made during the proposal, which is with an endeavor to insult me, you're telling me you like me, right? Like you just ripped me a new one as you were telling me you liked me. And he could have absolutely taken that as a third accusation and been like, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And that's not how I meant it in order to open up the possibility of a new conversation and say, I will not talk to you about this again if you do not want me to. But that accusation was fair. You know, he he doesn't even take it up. And so I agree that there would be a way to keep the conversation open and restate his case better without not hearing her saying, I heard your no. That's why I'm putting this in a letter. You never have to respond or talk to me again. However, I wish I had done it like this. He's obviously not in that place yet because he is a, you know, powerful defensive jerk to a large extent. I just, I think juxtaposed with Collins, I find this so refreshing. There's another element, too, about Darcy not so much as a romantic hero, but a hero that I think he lays out in this letter, which is, you know, in the old heroes and villain binary, we have been accustomed to seeing him as the villain, right? In the Wickham story, he is the clear villain. And he very compellingly turns that on its head to make Wickham the villain that then puts him in the place of the hero, We know now that he has saved Georgiana. We know now that he has done his due diligence however he can. And I think that having a new villain identified in the story means that Darcy is not a villain in the same way anymore. And I think that he does that in a very convincing way. Yeah. And that is the, I think, like really fun mystery novel in the middle of all this. Like, What is more fun in a mystery than realizing that everything is the opposite of what you thought, and yet when you go back and look at it, everything was mapped correctly the whole time? And this revelation, you know, the first time you read this book, you're like, oh my God, of course, you know? And I think that it's something that like shrewd mystery readers can observe about Wickham. I told that story about that kid who watched the miniseries with me on the bus in our first opening essay. And he he knew Wickham was the bad guy. <laughs> you know, he was just like, this guy is too good to be true. He's too handsome. He's too flirty. But Jane Austen invented those now cliche things, right? And so I, I can imagine reading this in 1814 and gasping like, oh my God. The whole time, the whole time, and going back and rereading, which is essentially what Lizzie's response is going to be, right? She's going back and is like, oh my God, every facial expression now makes more sense. And then, of course, what feels so meaningful about Lizzie's response is it's about herself. It's not about Darcy. It's not even really about Wickham, right? It's how could I have been so wrong? How could I have been wrong in terms of my own like hubristic response to all of these things that I could have questioned, but my vanity kept me from questioning them? 
because I wanted to be flattered by this gorgeous flirty dude and because I wanted to villainize this person who seems so haughty and standoffish and wouldn't give me the time of day, wouldn't even ask me to dance. And how could I have been so blind to myself? Which is the the quote that we wanted to look closely at this week, right, is, had I been in love, I could not have been more wretchedly blind, but vanity, not love, has been my folly, pleased with the preference of one and offended by the neglect of the other, on the very beginning of our acquaintance. I have courted prepossession and ignorance and driven reason away where either were concerned. Till this moment, I never knew myself. And I read this sentence just as despairing. I know this moment well, where suddenly you're like, I can't trust my own instinct about anyone. And the only thing I've ever done is respect my instincts about everyone. (laughs) And like, I never knew myself. I never knew myself. Like, this is as profound a loss of innocence moment, right? Like, I think of like J.D. Salinger with loss of innocence. And I think of James Joyce with his epiphanies and, right, like all of these people who are going to come after so many years after, decades and decades after Austin. And Austin in this one sentence is just, you know, articulating those moments that to me happen like annually, but there are bigger ones <laughs> and less big ones. And this is Lizzie's big one. And I think that this is the moment that defines this book as a coming of age novel. Right. And yet there's also something about this response, the drama of this response till this moment, I never knew myself, which feels so adolescent, right? So on the one hand, like this is this great moment of maturity and awakening. And on the other hand, it is still so in the voice of someone who is so, so young. I love it for that. Oh my God, I must be so immature because I feel like I still have thoughts like this where I'm like, oh shit, I'm wrong about everything. I've never been right about anything in my whole life. What am I doing? I mean, I think that we all carry that in ourselves though, right? (laughs) Although does Darcy, like this is something that I now wonder thinking like, did Darcy have a moment of till this moment I never knew myself? Did that compel him to sit down and write this letter. I th- I think this proposal is also his till this moment I never knew myself. I feel like we'll talk about it more when we see him again at Pemberley, but he is so utterly changed at Pemberley that there has to have been this thought that like, oh shoot, I've been messing up kind of my whole life and I need to rethink the way that I walk through the world. Well, Lauren, next week we will be talking about chapters 37, 38, and 39. And, you know, the two true loves are going to be reunited, Jane and Lizzie. And she finally gets out of Rosings. I'm so glad for her to finally get the hell out of Dodge. (laughs) (laughs) Go home, Lizzie. Go home. That's all Lizzie ever wants to do. She's like in Netherfield. She's like, please, God, I want to go home. Eventually, she'll go on a trip that she actually enjoys.
I think that for me this time reading Pride and Prejudice, the thunderbolt that has really hit me is Lizzie's response to this letter is less of a response, at least to me, of like a lover responding to a letter and much more of someone coming of age. And so I wanted to call up Joanna Rakoff, who's one of my oldest, dearest friends. We met studying English literature in London, not just because I love her, but because she's the author of two books, the novel A Fortunate Age, as well as the memoir My Salinger Year, that really examine sort of the relationship between falling in love and coming to terms with the romantic self and also deeply coming of age. These books really lean into discovery of the self in a way that I was really thinking of when I was reading this scene. Let's get Joanna on the phone. Hi. 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 (laughs) I am so excited to talk to you about this. Me too. Me too. Okay, so Lizzie gets this letter. Lizzie is sitting with this letter, and Lizzie's response to this letter is, I cannot believe myself. Yes. And I mean, for me, this is the pivotal moment in Pride and Prejudice. This is the moment when she, the scales fall from her eyes, and she realizes everything that she had believed was wrong. And I think there's a way in which she suddenly becomes an adult, right? She looks at the world through adult eyes because she understands that there are multiple ways of seeing the world and multiple truths. And you can make choices about who to believe and what to believe and how to live your life. And that's, I think, what makes her a grown-up ultimately and what lends the book the depth and complexity that we all love and respond to in it. I mean, it's interesting. If if you take away the end of the book, you know, if we take away the sort of marriage plot, happy ending element of it, do you feel like this is a book that is very much structured as a coming of age novel instead of a romance novel? Absolutely. And I've always thought of it that way. For me, it doesn't have the elements of a romance novel. It is completely a coming of age story in the same way that I mean, I actually think that Sense and Sensibility, also a coming-of-age story with a very similar structure, very similar turns in it. And in some ways, Persuasion is a coming-of-age story as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, just as someone who practices this craft, like the difference between building a coming-of-age story and what you think is sort of culturally attached to what this book is? Well, I feel like I should back up and say, you know, I have these two books, one fiction, one nonfiction, that are widely considered coming-of-age stories. And I'm always asked to speak on panels about coming-of-age stories and women's coming-of-age stories. But when I was writing them, I was not thinking of them in that way. It was only after they were done that I you know, thought of them as coming-of-age stories, particularly my Salinger year. But with hindsight, I can say that I think that what I was talking about with regards to Darcy's letter is very much what makes a book a coming-of-age story. That You have a character who perhaps views the world through the lens of her parents, her family, the community or milieu in which she was raised, and comes out on the other side able to view that milieu 
or worldview with a critical eye. For me, that's a coming of age story. And I think we really see that in a profound way in Pride and Prejudice with Lizzie in particular. And there's a way in which on this reading on my 50 billionth reading of Pride and Prejudice, I was thinking about the extent to which like she is so disdainful of Lydia and embarrassed by her. But Lydia's whole thing is that she can't resist a man in a red coat. And then what does Lizzie do? She falls for Wickham, who's just this like charismatic narcissist, you know? And so she kind of does the same thing as Lydia. She falls for this just like Lydia. And then, you know, she comes out the other side and she sees right through him and she's a very different person. She's no longer like Lydia at all, right? And I think on some level, she realizes that this is a behavior that is similar to her mom, in a weird way, similar to her dad, right? Who fell for her mom purely because she was beautiful and charming and similar to the traits in her family members that she despises. I mean, we talk so much about the words pride and the words prejudice, but, you know, there's that form of prejudice, which is, of course, more related to the initial title, First Impressions, where it's like, oh, this is what someone's beauty and charm has promised me. Either I'm going to commit to that or I'm going to question it. And I feel like there's something about coming of age tales where people have their sort of like original sin that they have to overcome. And it does feel like this is the moment where where Lizzie has her epiphany that unravels her original sin in some way. But I'm curious what you think about, you know, this sort of crucial pivot moment and what it means to have a book so thoroughly rely on a tentpole like this. Does it feel like a lot? Does it feel like, no, actually, this is how our, how our emotions work as readers? It feels like too much. And that's part of the reason why. I remember the first time I read it and... I remember having to go back and read these chapters again and be like, wait, what? What? And like, she reads this and she's like, oh, I'm wrong. Darcy's great. Like, there's so much in it that I didn't 100% buy, you know? So in writing A Fortunate Age in particular and my Salinger year, I was actually really conscious of not having a the letter moment like not having either of those books hinge on this one event or act that changes everything for the main characters. My Salinger Year is a book that's actually very much about letters. It's about people writing letters to Salinger and my responding to them, sort of trying to channel Salinger and how those letters kind of profoundly affected who I am and changed my life. But it's also about, um, there's a pivotal letter in it that's kind of analogous to this letter that my now husband, that he sent me, you know, apologizing to me for getting angry at me on the phone and explaining a whole bunch of things that I receive. And this is why I mentioned it. So I received the letter and in real life, I couldn't bring myself to open it. I was terrified to open it. And I eventually opened it. I read the greeting, which said, Dear Joe. And then I started crying and put it away and just didn't read it. I mean, like ever. (laughs) I eventually read it, but it was a really, really long time after that. And so I 
you know, as a student of fiction, I was so conscious of, you know, not bending the truth as one always does in memoir and not having the me character, you know, read this letter and be like, oh my God, he loves me. I love him. Why didn't I realize that he was the best? Let's get married. You know, (laughs) I'm going to quit my job and leave my horrible boyfriend and go back to him. I was very conscious of not having the turn, the turn toward adulthood rest on one incident. Oh, God, Jane Austen really did you wrong on this one, honey. (laughs) (laughs) If only I had read that letter. (laughs) You had overcorrected. So, I mean, obviously, my Salinger year is a memoir about letter writing and the end of letter writing in so many ways. But this book, of course, predates that so radically and was so much anchored in a tradition of making literature about letter writing and stitched together through one letter to another, even though it's not a fully epistolary novel. And I wonder if you could ground us in that a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, Austen is largely considered a Regency novelist, but in fact, she really is rooted in the 18th century. And she's really kind of an early novelist. And the first novels were all epistolary When we think of early novels, we think of Pamela and Clarissa, and those are epistolary novels. And those were the novels that Jane Austen was reading, right? And so there's a reason for that. And it's because people communicated by letter. Like they communicated their innermost thoughts, but they also communicated just like daily information via letter. Like we see that in Pride and Prejudice, of course. It's like Jane gets stuck at Netherfield and a letter has to be dispatched. Um, like everything was via letter. So it makes sense that the first novels were epistolary and it makes sense that so much information is conveyed via letter. So in a way, when I was saying like, oh, too much weight is placed on this one letter, I suppose that's very much me as a contemporary reader viewing too much weight being placed on this letter. For Jane Austen, a lot of weight was placed on every letter. Like this really could have happened or probably did happen that she received letters, that everyone received letters that turned their lives upside down. So in a way, like we were talking about it earlier, I was nastily talking about it as a kind of plot contrivance. But in a way, it's really kind of mimetic, right? Like Jane Austen was really just kind of portraying the texture of life in her era in which a letter could change your life. Uh, It makes me long for it. I mean, especially as, you know, there was so much anxiety about the world transitioning from letters to emails. And now that everything is just text, it feels like we don't actually fully explore or explain or process or revisit anything anymore. It's so true. It's so, so true. It, It's strange because I've read a number of articles that talk about how the the rise of texting has led the world to be more literary and that it's led to sort of a rise in literacy. And it means that people have to express themselves through words and thus are more literary and inclined to reading. But I don't really find that that's true. I find that there's so much miscommunication in texts because they're so kind of immediate and we respond without thinking in the way that, you know, when you write a letter, um, certainly in Austin's time, like when you think about that pivotal letter that we're discussing, 
I mean, we know, right, that Darcy probably wrote several drafts of it and, you know, thought it through. And he was probably up all night thinking about it. It's true. Everything is so reactive now and so toneless. Yeah. All right. Well, I I thank you, my dear, for joining us for this conversation, which I have loved. It's been a pleasure growing up with you (laughs) (laughs) and talking to you about it in this thinly veiled way today. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, It was such a pleasure. I'm like a super fan of the show. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. Thank you so much to those of you who've joined recently. We've really appreciated it. If you love the show, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to us. It really helps new listeners find us. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are distributed by 8Cast. Thanks, as always, to our Jane Level patrons, Viscount Elise Kenagaratnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Real of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks this week to Aisha Ramachandran and Tara Menon, and of course, Joanna Rakoff for talking to us. Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, A.J. Aramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.